0: comments and views expressed on The Moore Show are those of the people that make them and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kevin Moore, The Moore Show, or this radio station and its affiliates or sponsors. Hello and welcome to another edition of The Moore Show which is sponsored by the UFO Matrix magazine. On today's show, I'm about to be joined by my guest neuropsychiatrist, Dr. Peter Fenwick. Now, Peter is an academic expert on disorders of the brain. His most compelling and provocative research has been into the end-of-life phenomena, including near-death experiences, as well as the experiences of hospice and palliative care workers and the relatives of dying people. Dr. Peter Fenwick believes that consciousness may be independent of the brain, and so able to survive the death of the brain, a theory which has divided the scientific community. Dr. Peter Fenwick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Kevin. Now, uh, Peter, just tell the audience a bit about yourself to begin with.
1: Um, I'm a consultant neuropsychiatrist. That means that I have training in psychiatry and in neurology, so I work essentially with both the brain and the mind. And what I've done is I've run a neuropsychiatric uh, epilepsy unit at the Maudsley Hospital for a number of years. And I've also been involved in neurophysiology and ran a couple of units in London, one at the Westminster and one at St. Thomas's Hospital, uh, doing the neurophysiology for the hospital.
0: So, how did you get involved in the near-death experience, the NDE, and what is the near-death experience?
1: Well, I got involved in it. Um, I knew it didn't happen. Uh, this is way back in about 83, 84. I knew that this was something which only happened in the United States and would never cross the Atlantic. Because you may remember that Moody published his book in 1972 when he talked about the near-death experience and really brought it to the consciousness of the medical profession. Then in about 83, uh, being very skeptical, into my consulting room came somebody who told me he'd had uh, a cardiac catheter, which had gone wrong. His heart had stopped. Uh, He left his body, watched the catheterization process going wrong, then had a near-death experience, and he developed after that an acute anxiety state, and that's why he came to see me. Now, uh, we, then later on, in fact, we published it in 2000, we did a prospective study of people with cardiac arrests to find out what the near-death experience was like uh, in people who did have the arrest. And we found that the experience was like the general one, and that is that uh, you get a pain in your chest before the cardiac arrest, and suddenly you feel extremely calm. Uh, then uh, a number of people go down the tunnel, float down the tunnel, uh, they go in towards the light, and uh, the light is always loving, peaceful and welcoming. And then they may go into the light. And quite often in the light, there's a figure in the light. Some people interpret it as Jesus, others as Christ, others as a high, highly developed spiritual being. And there's some sort of conversation. Then in this country, um, people go into a most wonderful garden. It's a sort of quintessential English garden with flowers and flowers right. and all that sort of thing and there they may meet dead relatives about 12% have a life review when they, they go through their whole life which is shown to them and this is very ethical because the um, uh, if you see a, a rather grubby act which you may have carried out, let's say you broke a glass in a pub and hit somebody then in the life review you feel their pain not what you experienced but their pain and of course that's pretty horrifying to you but you're always held in love and you always judge yourself nobody else judges you then the time comes for you to go back you either want to go back and find yourself back in, in your bed or you may be sent back or there may be a discussion and then you decide after the discussion to go back so that that's the prototypical uh, near-death experience
0: Okay, now these would you say aren't just memories of a of the dying brain, no.
1: Well, there there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, let me tell you about our our data source for near death experiences. In eighty seven, um, we did the first uh, English documentary on uh, NDEs in this country, and it's called Glimpses of Death. It was a QED, a BBC QED program. And after that, we got two thousand letters. Now remember. That most people didn't know anything about NDEs at that time. And so uh, when we looked through these 2,000 letters, 98% had never heard of the NDE when they uh, had the experience. Now, that will never happen again now, and you can't get a sample like that. And we wrote a book on that called The Truth and the Light, which gives the the experiences uh, and the data figures. So we have a lot of data on this um uh, is it just a dying brain well uh the first thing that you have to understand about near-death experiences is, is that they can occur in many different situations they can occur in cardiac arrest and then you can apply the dying brain model to that if you like they occur in serious illness uh sometimes when brain function is disturbed, on other occasions when it's not all that disturbed. So that makes it a little more difficult. Then you come to the psychologically induced near-death experiences. These are when, for example, you are driving along the road, suddenly the car in front of you spins out of control, you put your brakes on, you spin out of control, and it's during that period when you're out of control that the number of people will have a near-death experience. And when the experience is finished and they're back in their car again, they'll probably find that either just beside the road or the car is just finishing spinning and the brain hasn't been uh, touched in any way at all. So it's just intense fear can trigger these these uh, experiences off. Also falling down a mountain but not hitting your head can again induce it. So those ones you can't go into the dying brain uh, hypothesis at all. And then there are the final group, which are spontaneous, near-death type of experiences, which are transcendental. Uh, and these ones, of course, uh, you can't argue for a dying brain, so uh, the phenomenology cannot all be accounted for by the dying brain, because some people who have the experiences, they're not dying.
0: Right, okay. Um, we've touched on so many threads there. Um, one question I want to ask you, is: what, what sort of drives you to, you know, to, to have done this research? What, what's the sort of pushing force behind this? Is it, are, you, are you looking for answers on a personal journey?
1: Um, not so much on a personal journey. Definitely looking for answers, though. Uh, when I first met this guy with his acute anxiety state, um, and I had to face the fact that near-death experiences did occur and occur in this country, Uh, then one wants to know what's the mechanism. And, of course, being a neuropsychiatrist, I'm interested in the uh, mind side, in fact, what people experience, why they experience it, and then the mechanism side. Um, What are the likely causes of this? And uh, there have been a number of hypotheses put forward, all of which um, can't really explain everything about it For example, there is the shortage of oxygen theory. Well, people in car crashes uh, who are just frightened aren't short of oxygen. There's loads of it about. Um, So those sort of theories won't work. You can argue, if you like, that uh, the lack of oxygen theory might do for the cardiac arrests because uh, in cardiac arrests, the heart has stopped. You stop breathing. The brain has shut down and so that certainly there is very little oxygen about. Interestingly, in the prospective study we did at Southampton Hospital with Sampania, uh, we measured oxygen levels, or they were being measured at the time of the arrest, and those with the experiences had the highest levels of oxygen. But uh, if you look at the way people lose consciousness with oxygen lack, it's not the sort, they don't get the sort of experiences that you do with near-death experiences. So that one uh, won't explain everything. And this is true for whether it's too much carbon dioxide, whether it's due to uh, sleep phenomena breaking through uh, into um, unconsciousness. Right. Uh, so there are all sorts of theories like that, but none of them hold across the board.
0: Okay. Now, how many patients have you sort of, you know, researched uh, re- regarding the NDE, near death experience?
1: Well, the, in our original sample of two thousand letters, we took out five hundred, and um, we sent questionnaires to them. We got three hundred and forty replies. It may have been a bit higher. Maybe closer to 400. So that's the group that uh, you, you could say that we've studied m- most intensively because they had a fixed questionnaire to answer. So we were able to get information like, did you go down the tunnel? Uh, did, you, um, uh, did you see the being of light? What color was the light? You know, all sorts of things like that. We were able to ask uh, of that sample.
0: I mean now you mentioned uh, Sam Parney there and um he yeah he's he is in fact conducting one of the uh, world's largest I think studies on the near death experience I don't know if it's uh, if he's finished his uh, study yet um but I believe they're actually having symbols on the on on the on the ceiling in in the operating theater and and specifically placed um, items as well
1: um Yes. Let me explain to you about this study. It's called the AWARE study. Uh, And AWARE uh, is an acronym for awareness, the AW, uh, in resuscitation. So uh, this this is a cardiac arrest study. And the protocol for it is that, first of all, you go to ethics committees and get permission to do such a study in a hospital. Then uh, cards are put up close to the ceiling, and there are about 60 cards per hospital, and then um, the there is a mechanism whereby, if people have a cardiac arrest in a room where there is a card on the ceiling, their name is uh, given to the resuscitation officers, and then um, they will be asked uh, a simple question where they can't, the patients will be asked a simple question as to whether or not they were conscious during their cardiac arrest, and if so, what it was. And then they're given a questionnaire, which is called the Grayson Questionnaire. And this questionnaire um, really defines whether they had an NDE or not. It's a standard uh, instrument which is used in, in NDE research. Now, the reason that cardiac arrests are chosen is this reason. We know uh, from the prospective studies, and our Southampton study showed us, that about 10% of people who have a cardiac arrest will have an NDE. Now, the the question then is when does the NDE occur? Does it occur as you're going unconscious? Does it occur when you're unconscious and the brain is non-functional? Or does it occur as you recover consciousness? Now, this is enormously important. And it's important because the people, uh, a third of that 10% who have the NDE will leave their bodies and uh, watch the arrest uh, phenomenon uh, uh, in the room where the people are being resuscitated. So um, if that's true then this will show that the NDE occurs when the brain, brain function is seriously compromised because that time is a very good model of the beginning of the death process because you're not breathing. You've got uh, no heart uh, rate, no blood pressure, and your brainstem reflexes. That is the way the brainstem works. Uh, has stopped functioning so the brain to all intents and purposes is not working and you can't argue that there are little bits of the brain which could be working because uh to maintain consciousness many structures within the brain have to operate and they can't uh in those conditions so um that would suggest that mind and brain may not be civil similar Uh, In other words, you may not be able to equate mind and brain absolutely. Now, a statement like that is so, so counter to our neuroscience that extraordinary statements require extraordinary evidence to support them. And the evidence that the AWARE study is trying to get is that if people uh, do leave their bodies and do watch the resuscitation process and are up at the ceiling when they do this, then they should be able to see the cards which are put up there. Now, if there are one or two people who see the cards, that's interesting. But uh, using the figures of the Southampton study, uh, this study has been powered so that 1,500 people with cardiac arrests will be questioned. Of those, we expect 10%, so it's 150 to have near-death experiences. And of the 150, a third, so that's 50 uh, will leave their bodies and watch the arrest. So uh, we should get 50 people who will be able to answer that question. Now, that's a decent, um, a decent sample. If uh, we do get that sample, then we can say, um, well, look, guys, we'll write it up scientifically and say exactly what we did, and this is our finding. Now, what we would expect to happen is that most people would say rubbish, then we say, fine, this is a scientific study. Now, you repeat it, and we expect you'll find the same. And so it's going to be, then, first of all, producing a decent body of data, and then the replications which are done, uh, which will ask questions about mind and brain.
0: So why do you think it's such a small percentage of people have the NDE? Uh, is, it, is the NDE specifically there to sort of wake people up? And it... Do you think it's a specific thing for uh, uh, certain people as well that um, maybe they need a near-death experience? Maybe it's the only thing they'd understand to say, "Look, you know, wake up. There's more to life than just just this existence," and that's their own personal journey. Well, what do you think, Peter?
1: Uh, it's a it's an interesting question. That uh, there's been a, a, a new book came out just recently. It's called The Handbook of Near Death Experiences which is a multi-author book, and it looks at uh, 30 years of NDE research. Now, this book uh, contains a lot of data which has been brought together on what happens to you if you have an NDE. And there's no doubt that uh, if we go stick with the cardiac arrest data, uh, people who have a cardiac arrest and no experience are different after their cardiac arrest because they've been very frightened. They start to ask fundamental questions about their life and what it's for and so on. But the interesting point is that people, if they have an NDE experience, change more. They become more spiritual, more social. Um, Some of them say that they get um, parapsychological gifts given to them, a small percentage. So there are a whole lot of ways in which people are said to change. And after a change like that, uh, the people who have the experience look back and really say just what you say. This was a very important experience for me, and probably I needed an experience like that. But it's always difficult to know whether this has just been fitted into the data or whether, in fact, it's actually true.
0: Yeah, I mean, how closely, <laughs> do, even nowadays, does spirituality and science sort of mix?
1: Um It depends uh, what sort of scientist you are. Because I'm a neuropsychiatrist, I deal with mind and what people experience. Um, As a neurologist, of course, I would be dealing with brain and brain function. Now, one of the arguments is, and there's uh, a book by Daniel Dennett called The Mind Explained, and Daniel Dennett takes the view that if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist, And those people who take that view of science are materialists. Now, I find that a very difficult position to be. Uh, In his book, he's absolutely logical, and many of the materialists are absolutely logical, and their science is very good, and they say, if you can't measure it, it's not there. So um, because uh, I'm a psychiatrist and deal with the mind, I take a broader view than that. In fact, I think that people's experiences in themselves are important. So it it just depends what view of science you take. So your question was, uh, does spirituality mix with science? And the answer is yes, it does. And you can do uh, very good science on uh, different types of spiritual experiences, the changes they produce in the people. And now with our ability to start measuring genes and receptor changes, you're beginning to be able to show that people who have spiritual experiences do in fact have an alteration in brain function as well.
0: But to understand the brain, one of the most complicated um, organs that we have in our body, um, in the uh, universe, some a- a- and, say. And, and in the universe, that's right. So, I mean, we we do not. I mean, to say that um, to say that uh, just because it, it, you can't register it, it doesn't exist. We barely understand the brain.
1: Uh, that's absolutely right. But it it's in fact goes back to the changes which occurred in science. In the 1920s, in the last century, with the advent of quantum mechanics, there we learned that uh, there are certain things that you cannot actually explain in the same way. For example, if one takes the Copenhagen explanation of, the, of complementarity, which Niels Bohr put forward, you can either see um, a photon as light as a particle or as a wave, The two are complementary to each other, but if you're measuring it as a particle, you don't see its waveness. If you measure it as a waveness, you don't see its particleness. Now, people have used those sorts of ideas in thinking about such things as uh, the brain and consciousness. Maybe if you look at consciousness, that's one thing, and you can't talk about structure. And if you look at structure, then you can't talk about consciousness, do you see? The the ideas of complementarity c- comes into it. In other words, um, it depends entirely how you look at things and the questions you ask as to the answers you get.
0: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it feels to me that like, uh, you must have met quite a bit of resistance back in the time when you first studied your um, uh, patients for NDE, especially in the 80s. I mean, it, w- it would have been quite a difficult uh, paradigm back then, would it not?
1: Um, it it was, because uh, people were like me. Uh, I had the experience of NDEs. They didn't. I didn't believe them until I'd actually met people who had them. So the fact that people didn't think that these were anything apart from imagination, I, I was really sympathetic to. Uh, it was a little difficult to begin with to to get permission from ethics committees to do research, because people weren't sure what the value of it was. Um, For example, if you took people coming out of an intensive care unit and asked if they had experiences when they had their cardiac arrests, people felt that this might just upset them. But in fact, now we know that it doesn't upset people and they're very keen to talk about their near-death experiences and find it enormously helpful and relieving to do so. But this is just the way that science progresses. First of all, you get occasional cases, then you get a group together, and then you can start asking scientific questions about the group. So uh, the fact that there was resistance in the early days is um, totally understandable.
0: I mean, I I still think, though, socially, we are a little bit dumbed down when it comes to, you know, discussing death. I mean, it's not a subject that you would, you know, constantly and always want to talk about. Of course not. But, you know, it's not, um, it's not taught, is it, as such? It's never really, it's a sort of thing that happens when we're older. Do, do, do you know yes. what I mean?
1: Yes, that's right. Now, the whole death thing uh, became, to me, enormously interesting because if you understand that uh, I was looking at the experiences of those who were to all intents and purposes dead, I'm talking about people who've had a cardiac arrest, no pulse, no blood pressure, uh, no respiration, no brain function. They said that they, in fact, had an experience or 10% said they do. And so what I was wondering is whether this, in fact, could be a... Um, the beginning of the death process itself. Now, of course, other people have asked this question. So what I did then was to go back and look at the experiences that the dying have and ask the question, what is dying like? Now, this to me was a really interesting question because there was very little data on it. So what we did is we did a survey in two hospices and a nursing home in the UK, and some co-workers of ours have just completed a survey in hospices in Rotterdam. Uh, Dr. Una Macalvill has used our questionnaire with uh, a hospice in Ireland, and there is a group in New York who are giving uh, similar questionnaires to a group of patients um, over there. So. The data that is coming in is now uh, coming in from uh, different uh, other different units, and what it's showing is that as we die, we w- there are. It seems to us certainly that there is a process which goes on. Now, some people it, it goes quickly, and other people they don't get it all. In some people, it seems as if there's none at all. And because this study is only just beginning, I can't give you. Uh, absolute figures for it except to say that in our studies um, uh, uh, it's these experiences, uh, the end-of-life experiences, are not uncommon. It it usually starts, and this is the rarest one, with a premonition that people are going to die. I don't want to talk too much about that because we don't have uh, very good data on that. Then about a month before you die, you get what are called deathbed visions. These are um, hallucinations uh, that the dying have of uh, de- dead relatives who come to see them. Now, it's really most interesting because uh, in our studies and also in the responses that we've had from people, and if any of your listeners want to write in to me with deathbed, uh, with stories of... of uh, deathbed phenomena, then I'd I'd love to hear them. Uh, It seems as if the relatives are usually parents, but not always. And uh, they come into the room, as I said, uh, three to four weeks before you die. This is what the dying report. They see them. And uh, they usually, um, the dying are very pleased to see them and welcome them. And often the relatives will set a time when they say, that's the dead relative, say to the dying, (coughs) that they're going to come back and take the people when they die, look after the people when they die. So this is enormously comforting to the dying because uh, they feel that they are not going to die alone. They're going to be helped through the dying process. Then the next stage, and again, not everybody does this, is they go into... Sometimes they're in the hospice, and sometimes they're in uh, another reality. The reality is very much like that of the um, near-death experience. And people seem to move in and out between these two realities. That's their experience. And then you come to the next phase, which is called terminal lucidity, and this is just before you die. And this has now become of interest to neuroscience, Uh, what happens is that uh, just before you die, I mean literally maybe a few minutes or an hour uh, you may come out of your coma because you may have been in coma for a few days you sit up and you may not have sat up for several weeks because you're so weak and you then um, welcome uh, quite often the people who the relatives, alive relatives who are sitting around the bed but sometimes they seem to specifically alert into consciousness to wake, to uh, greet uh, the dead relatives who, who have also, uh, in some people, come at that time. So it's, it, that, the sudden arousal from coma is uh, interesting. It was called by the Victorians, lightning at the end of life. Uh, they, they meant lightning in consciousness. And um, the other interesting thing for neuroscience is that it is reported. The data is not good yet, but it's reported. And certainly, we got one or two examples of this from the nursing home when we did our survey. That people who have been um, uh, who have Alzheimer's and are profoundly demented will sit up, will recognise the family right at the end. And so we would need to n- try and understand what the mechanisms were. I think I think that's really very interesting. Uh, then the person dies, and you get what are called deathbed coincidences. Now, these are fascinating. <clears throat> We've got a number of stories of these, and it depends on uh, who the person who receives the visit, uh, what mental state they're in, whether they are awake or asleep. Now, it's like this. The data suggests that the dying person initiates the visit. We say that because our data points in that direction. So at the moment of death, they go and visit somebody to whom they're closely emotionally attached. They don't go to a stranger. It's always to somebody who they know very well. If that person is awake, then the visit is one in which uh, they uh, may feel that something awful has happened to the person who's dying. They may feel that they have to go and ring up and find out what's happening. Some people feel uh, it's like a push, but uh, it's certainly a very strong emotional feeling. The um, the if they're asleep, then the visit is um, different. It comes in, the person comes in a vision. It's narrative, tells a story, and is more complex. Uh, we did a study on uh, 35 deathbed coincidences and all and half and uh, over half of them uh now all of them occurred within half an hour of death and half of them occurred at the time of death so it's very much related to death itself these are always explained by people saying well of course we all have these feelings but the person, people who have had them say that they're quite unusual and quite different from the normal feeling that somebody may be in trouble at the uh, uh, at the t- actual time of death itself, uh, a whole lot of things happen. People report seeing uh, shapes leaving the body. Other people report the body is being surrounded by light at the time of death. Some people report that the expression on the person's face is transfigured. So there are all these accounts that people give of what happens at the time of death. And um, we feel that that the actual dying process at the moment is is poorly recorded and contains a lot of really interesting phenomena
0: so what's the shift out there nowadays how is your work received by your peers basically i mean is it easy for them to sort of um side you know we're not i'm sure they they've got their own opinions on certain things but you know when the data is put in front of them can they uh, you know is it something that they can accept
1: uh, well, most people will will accept that it's, these studies are data driven, and so that's what they do. Um, but just a caveat on that, because our studies weren't done with dying people. Um, our studies were done with carers for dying. Now, we started these studies in two thousand and four, I think, and um, what we we didn't know what. These deathbed phenomena were. I've just given you the series, but in fact, we didn't know that these really existed. There are some papers in the literature, but very few. And I couldn't go to an ethics committee and say to them, well, look, what I want to do is to ask the dying about their experiences and the relatives of the dying just after somebody's died, because it's such a, a very, very special and emotional time. So what I did was to ask the committee, if they would give me permission to talk to carers of the dying. So we talked to hospice nurses, hospice volunteers, uh, other, other members of the hospice who uh, are in contact with the dying. And we asked them, how many of these experiences, because we had a question which they could fill in, uh, had they uh, um, experienced in the previous five years when we went to the hospice? And that's called a retrospective study. So we said, what had happened in the past five years? Then we went into the hospices again a year later and asked the same people, having asked them to keep a diary, uh, so that they could record exactly what was happening um, in the, uh, in that year in terms of experiences in with the people who had died. And that's called a prospective study. So we have retrospective data and prospective data, and that gives us um, a, a rough idea of how frequently these events occur, but it 's not as good as talking to the actual dying themselves and the relatives, so th- that 's one of the drawbacks to our study
0: yes, because I, I guess you know it, for the carers and the hospice staff, you know that there can 't be any sort of papers that for them to read on uh, uh with data sort of driven for the NDs i mean uh,
1: of, for the end of life experience yeah for the yeah. Um, that's correct, and one of the questions which we asked um, the, the hospice staff was, have you ever been trained on these? And the answer to that was only about 9% knew about them. All 100% wanted uh, more training and more information. And in one brainstorming session, they suggested that we should put out a pamphlet uh, for carers, Uh, in hospices about these experiences and in fact that we've done and Sue Brain one of the uh, co-workers in the study also wrote the first draft of when her father was dying of a pamphlet for uh, relatives of the dying which has been very well accepted and of course it, it mentions the whole dying process but it goes beyond that and talks about end-of-life experience as well, but only in as much as they feature in the dying process itself.
0: Well, after all these years, Peter, of of, of, uh, the studies that you've done and uh, all the research that's gone into it as well, where do you think we go when we pass on?
1: Well, um, ask the dying. They'll tell you. Um, Once the deathbed visitors have come, the language of the dying tends to change they say, when I'm picked up, when I, when I go, um, so-and-so will be there to meet me. Um, those who've gone into another reality feel that that other reality is the one that they're going to go into uh, when they die. So um, a proportion of them have a very strong feeling that they're going somewhere. And in our book, which we wrote these experiences up in called The Art of Dying, We use the term which was given to me by a professor of um, palliative care at Bath University, uh, Professor Kelleher. He uses the term elsewhere. So uh, we say that the dying are going to elsewhere. That's what they tell us.
0: But what do you think personally? Where where do you think you're going to go when you pass on?
1: Um, I I hope uh, that I will have these experiences that I've been talking to you about and then it'd be really nice to find oneself uh, in the sort of near-death country garden but maybe that isn't like that I don't know
0: so do, but do you think though that knowing about the NDEs, having all the data that you've got and, and sort of researching when other, others research it as well do you think it's a powerful thing to do to know the process of dying
1: yes I do uh, one of the uh, interesting facts for me, which came out of our end-of-life experience was uh, the correlation between the English data and that of the uh, Dalai Lama. Uh, In his book on living and dying, he gives a very good account of what the dying process is uh, in his culture. And what he says is that the dying go through a whole set of stages, and he attributes this to the loosening of consciousness, and he has his own theories about this, which I don't fully understand, because it's not within our scientific culture to think that way. But the experiences certainly are, and what he says is the first thing, as you come into the death process itself, the beginning of the death process, you experience a sort of mirage, uh, like the wavy heat lines, you know, that you see on, on a um, a tarmac road in the summer. Yes. And we have a number of people, a number of accounts of experiences like that, that people who are with the dying have had, um, as the person comes up to death. Then the next one is um, a sensation of smoke. And we've got experience of people seeing uh, smoke leaving the body. It's not smoke in the sense that you and I think of smoke. It's sort of like that, but not like it. And sometimes this sort of smoke will take form of a shape. Then the next thing that is described by both the Dalai Lama and in our data is spiritual lights in the room. Sometimes it's described as sparks, Uh, The Dalai Lama describes it as little bright sparks of light, and in our data it's little, uh, again, bright sparks of white light or little balls of white light. And then there is the flooding of light uh, uh, from the body into the room. Now, I don't think this is going to turn out to be uh, the light that you and I see when we turn a torch on because uh, we have accounts of this light being seen by some people in the room and not by others, which indicates it's more a spiritual light than a a physical light. Or it may be both. I don't know. But you would have to have light measuring equipment in the room to see it. And then the Dalai Lama goes, uh, then breathing stops. And then there are a whole set of experiences which, of course, we can't uh, follow. And that is, um, you get a, uh, an orange sky, he calls it, like an orange sky, then a white sky, like a white sky. And then you get a living blackness, and then that's followed for the first time. And this is quite some time in his uh, theory after unconsciousness. And then you go unconsciousness, and when you wake up, you come into what the Buddhists call the clear light. But we don't have uh, any of that in, in our series. It's just the first stages, which seem similar to the Tibetan.
0: And you keep mentioning the uh, Dalai Lama there. What, what influence that, has that had on your work?
1: Um, the influences that it has had is the uh, our interest caused by these uh, these correlations in the early stages of dying, as if, in fact, there is a similarity between. Uh, what they have experienced in the dying in their culture and what we see in our culture uh, in in dying people. So um, I think that's enormously interesting.
0: So uh, for those on their deathbed or for those um, with with loved ones uh, within some sort of palliative care system, what advice can you give to them then? I mean, if they want extra time, if they want to, you know, if, if they don't feel it's, it's their time to go yet, can, can they stop the process? <laughs> That's
1: a really interesting question. And what came out of our data is that people try to do that. Um, we're talking here about the deathbed visitors. Uh, incidentally, what I didn't say is that sometimes other people in the room see the deathbed visitors, which suggests that they're not hallucinations, and quite often it's children, very occasionally hospice workers, and sometimes members of the family, but uh, as a rule, nobody else sees them. Um, but the dying uh, will say, uh, "Oh, if you're going to come back on Tuesday, please don't come back on Tuesday. Will you come back on Friday? Because I'm expecting to my son to come from America. And that sort of... Um, request is in fact seems to be accepted but uh... requests because there's going to be a hospice party i mean we haven't had one like this but if there was going to be something like that one feels that those would be turned down so very important requests seem to be able to extend your life a bit
0: if life does continue peter um, what are the ramifications of that
1: I think that you have to think, first of all, that uh, uh, there was a very strong Christian influence in this country, and and then it was very common for people to think about life after death and assume that it would. And within uh, that cultural stream, there was, of course, the whole question of the quality of life that you'd lived here and the quality of the life to come and whether, in fact, uh, one would get a better or not existence. So there's there's going to be all these cultural influences which which come to bear on the question of, of life after death. Uh, <clears throat> so um, it, it's 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 a very difficult question on the whole to to give a direct answer to because people will have their own belief structures and the data, of course, is quite quite uh, difficult to to get hold of. But uh, if you uh, read, and this is not my field, and I, I'm not qualified to speak about it, but if you read the um, the ideas of what happens after death through mediumistic experiences, then uh, it depends when you read the experiences. If you read those from the 20s, Uh, then the view of the afterlife is much more bureaucratic than it is now. So there seems to be a a large cultural element which comes into people's description of what happens afterwards. But I think one of the interesting points uh, to me is that uh, some of the mediumistic experiences describe how people at, at the moment of death, if they're not prepared for it, become very disorientated and confused. So I think certainly we should be taught about the death process so as to stop the confusion if there is a continuation of, of, of life after we die and that there should be prompt preparation for it but always with the caveat that we're not sure that this is in fact exactly what happens.
0: Do, th- do you think science will ever break through to make that connection that yes, uh, the, there is such thing as a soul and it seems to carry on?
1: Um, I don't see why not, um, because if there is such a thing as a soul it fits within the universe, and if it fits within the universe and our understanding of, of the universe, and I don't see why science isn't the preferential method for looking at it. And one of the interesting things that's been happening in science is that there is now um, a much greater weight given to the experience of individuals. Um, For example, the uh, changes in mental state which occur uh, when you meditate, for example. Now, most people would have said many years ago, time of the Beatles, well, it's all imagination, isn't it? But now we can show that they're very distinct and clear brain changes which occur with it. Now, I don't see why if um, the very wide experiences that people can have I would show a totally different sort of uh universe, an interconnected universe, which consciousness is the basis rather than matter i don't see why um, we shouldn't in fact um, have a scientific understanding of this, which takes into account both material and experience
0: but do you or think consciousness do you think we're supposed to know
1: ah interesting question. Um, yeah, I don't see why not. I like the idea that we can uh,
0: I mean, so it, I mean, it's never been a, a sort of clear and cut subject. It never will be. Um, do you think it could be like a personal journey individually, perhaps, to come up with that conclusion yourself?
1: Well, one of the areas that I'm interested in is what is called... Um, Direct path to enlightenment. Now, remember, I'm a a neuropsychiatrist, so I'm interested in people's experiences. And there seem to be now a large number of people who have experiences where they say they've become enlightened. For enlightened, just think of a sort of ego death. And they have a very interesting uh, mental state. Now, in that mental state, they argue for a very different universe. They will argue. First of all, that um, the the world that we see is, in fact, an illusory world, which goes back again to um, sort of uh, Buddhist understanding of the world, is an illusory world which is part of a play. And that beyond that, at the basis of that, there is a a much more fundamental reality which you can experience directly. Now that would suggest then that if that view is true, I can see no reason why we shouldn't come to understand it, first of all by description and then later by measurement. So So the idea of a cell continuing seems to be perfectly possible within that framework.
0: So in a near-death experience case, um, we're returning back to our body after having a, a, a life review and, you know, a, other things going on. Now, am I to understand that that life review and, you know, whatever else they get up to can take what could be cl- classed as hours or uh, days compared to being, uh, you know, on that operating theatre or, or whatever the situation that called the calls the NDE to happen, taking, what, minutes or seconds?
1: Uh, yes. Yes. Um the, one of the standard questions that you're given is, um, in, in the questionnaires, that is, to people who've had NDEs, is uh, what was time like? Did it appear to go very slowly or did it appear to go very fast? And in the wider and deeper experiences, then uh, they, they experience huge amounts of... Um, experience, which would, if it was in our everyday time, take many, many years. So there's a vast compression of time, or if you like, there is a huge expansion of the moment, so that uh, uh, in every moment, huge amounts of events can occur. So there is a, a, a distortion of time along that axis.
0: And it seems to me, from what you said, that in the life review, you said that you get to feel the pain of others. Now, were you, were you talking about physical pain there, or emotional pain?
1: Um, it's unclear. Uh, the, the, the people who describe it usually say they felt the pain of the other person, giving the um, impression that it is a physical pain that they felt. Um, but... Uh, Also, there is definitely a feeling of the emotional consequences of the act that you carried out as well. So it seems to be on both those levels.
0: So it seems to me, then, that there is no one judging you when you pass on. You judge yourself.
1: That's what the data
0: suggests. So, how can people then apply that to their everyday life to sort of improve it? Is it basically saying that, you know, look, we can manifest things ourselves, we are in charge of our own destiny no matter what's going on around us, and we have to take full control and not blame anyone else?
1: (laughs) That's, it's a a really interesting question that, and um, the the point that I that I think is so interesting is that we um, take control of our own destiny. Now, Uh, In our culture, it would be totally, totally counterculture to suggest in any way that we don't take control of our destiny, that we don't have absolute control. And in fact, our whole society is built on the idea of responsibility. Now, there are just two sets of ideas which are coming in uh, which suggest that it may not be like that, but goodness knows uh, whether they're true or not. The first one is from science neuroscience particularly, which suggests that the brain makes many decisions before the decisions become conscious. In other words, uh, in one particular experiment, the workers could tell um, about 10 minutes before whether a subject was going to press a button with his left or right hand. Okay, it's a fairly simple thing, but the, the argument is that um, the, uh, uh, the brain decides what's going to happen and then it comes into consciousness and we attribute this decision to us making it. And there's some evidence again from neuroscience that actual actions, you can trick the brain into not attributing actions to ourself. In other words, it, it appears as if something else is carrying out the actions when we really are. So there's just the beginnings then of a neuroscience which argues that uh, we are a sort of automaton. Uh, what we can do is direct attention, but maybe not much else now that is only a view which is just beginning, and whether it 's correct or not i don't I have no idea, but it's just a suggestion, and that goes in with the um, very much with the Buddhist idea that uh, The the world arises in front of you and is a play and it's played out in front of you and that you don't, in fact, direct it. So there are those two streams of ideas and uh, how that will develop, I just don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, you say there that that we have sort of... um, we have full control in this society of where we take our life, but do, do you not feel, though, that some of these people that have these NDEs were not taking that responsibility and they were sort of being led a lot of the time.
1: They're certainly very different after their NDEs and they will argue, they will go much more to the idea of the destiny which they are fulfilling. And um, it's not uncommon in NDE experiences for the NDE experiencer to be told that there are things, he has to come back because there are things that they have to achieve. And Sometimes the things are very simple, like they must uh, carry out, and one, one of my uh, patients came back because she hadn't completed the ironing, that's at that end. But the other <laughs> ones are, are really uh, wonderful things. They, sometimes in the childbirth experiences, they know they're pregnant and they must come back and look after the child, so looking after the child, looking after the family. Uh, is are reasons which are given for coming back or being sent back. You must go back because you got to look after your family, or they they can be uh, things that they have to do. Now that's interesting because uh, sometimes the NDA will come back having been sent back to accomplish things, and it's got that quality to it. But they don't know what they've come back to accu- to um, to accomplish, although now that I've spoken to some people who've had uh, near-death experiences earlier in their lives, what they've come back to to accomplish seems to be uh, clearer to them. So you can argue in that sense that fate and destiny are, are very much part of the NDE.
0: So obviously that's saying that life down here, the reason we're here is you know, it's very special. And uh, do you think it's also saying that where we end up going call it home or heaven or whatever you, you you want to personify it with um we can't obviously get on this level where we, when we're on planet earth what what we get when we cross over so i i really wonder what it is that we get on this level that we that we need to to it seems to be to to grow perhaps in 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 a sense
1: well the nde would certainly agree with that that um they have come back for a reason, and one of the reasons is spiritual growth, and uh, that's all embedded in the data uh, very much because of the changes and the spiritual changes that people have had NDEs undergo, and they would see it as, um, if you like, a wake-up call, and many of them do, uh, for the fact that their life was out of balance. And the sorts of ways that they change is that they do become more spiritual. They become much more family-orientated, much less work-orientated. They become much, much more aware of social obligations, social responsibilities, much more social people. So they, they become...
0: L- less uh, fearful? So,
1: sorry? Less- much less. Oh, totally fearful of death, Yeah
0: fearless Um, yeah yeah, fear
1: less of death sorry yes no they don't fear death because they've been there they know it and it's nothing to be afraid of and that's one of the strongest messages of the nde i think yes the other very strong message is this one and that is that standing in the universal light of love and consciousness joy and bliss transforms you and uh, one of the things about the near-death experience is that you do get these transformations. And you can think of the cultural effect of this, even if it's only on a micro scale, that over one million Americans have stood in this light of love, bliss, and consciousness. That's going to change things. And of course, in this country, many people have done exactly the same. About 10% are said to have done so. So that it's, it's, a, it's, a cultural, it's producing a cultural change as well.
0: So is love the only answer then?
1: (laughs) If you ask the NDEs they would say absolutely yes and the interesting thing is that uh, in the actual deathbed experiences it is love or emotional connection which seems to drive them very strongly.
0: Fascinating. Now your book, The Art of Dying, that's available from all good bookstores isn't it?
1: Absolutely, it's in print, you can get it now.
0: Okay, well we're going to put a link on our website for that book. Um, And you join us on our TV show as well. Uh, And if people don't catch the show on on television, they can uh, watch it from our our TV uh, website. Uh, We'll be able to catch you um, on the YouTube link. So, uh, Dr. Fenwick, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: And thank you very much for having me, Kevin. And I've enjoyed talking to you as well.
0: To find out more information on Dr. Peter Fenwick or any of my guests, just go to themoreshow.co.uk and look up Dr. Peter Fenwick under past guests. Now you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter to get the latest updates on the show. And that we have a TV show which goes out every Friday at 6pm on Sky 201 and FreeSat 403. So until next time, thanks for listening.